Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Saturday, December 21st, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 30. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We create informative content and tools for sustaining backyard food production on small plots and in urban areas. If you enjoy this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com slash polycultured. This episode is going to cover one of the most important women scientists of the 20th century, because I think it's pretty important that women who make such a large impact on the future are acknowledged, as we are often overlooked and written out of history. Rachel Carson was the author of the now famous book Silent Spring, which had a massive impact both nationally and globally on environmental policy regarding the use of pesticides. Like many women scientists, Carson is still overlooked today outside of environmentalist circles, but her legacy cannot be denied. This podcast will give a brief history of Rachel Carson's life and work and discuss our current state of affairs when it comes to how we manage wildlife and agriculture without the use of harmful chemicals. Rachel Carson was born on May 27, 1907 in rural Pennsylvania. She loved nature from the time she was a child and went on to study at the Pennsylvania College for Women, now Chatham University. After finishing her bachelor's in 1929, she studied at the Oceanographic Institute at Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and later received her master's in zoology from John Hopkins University in 1932. She had fully intended to continue for a doctorate, but was forced to leave John Hopkins to search for a full-time teaching position to help support her family during the Great Depression. In 1936, Carson became the second woman ever hired by the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries, where she worked for 15 years writing materials for public consumption, such as brochures and a radio program. She also had the job of analyzing and reporting field data on local fish populations. Eventually, she was promoted to editor-in-chief for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Along with writing for her job, she also penned a series of articles and submitted them to newspapers for publication. In 1937, the Atlantic Monthly accepted a piece titled Undersea. The famous publishing house Simon & Schuster contacted Carson after the essay was published, which resulted in her first book. Carson wrote four books during her lifetime, with a few others published posthumously. Her earliest works, Under the Sea Wind, 1941, and The Sea Around Us, focused on sea life, chronicling East Coast ecosystems with poetic inflection. Carson resigned from government service in 1952 to devote herself to writing. She continued to do field and library research on the ecosystems of the Atlantic coast. Threaded through all of Carson's writing was the idea that human beings were a part of nature, yet separated ourselves primarily by the power to alter the natural environment, in some cases irreversibly. The Sea Around Us remained on the bestsellers list for over 18 months and launched her into the spotlight as a famous author. Carson dabbled in writing about evolution, but ultimately decided to place her focus on conservation. She joined the Nature Conservancy and made plans to purchase an area of pristine Maine woodlands. Unfortunately, her plans changed rather quickly when her niece died suddenly, and Rachel took up the responsibility for caring for her five-year-old son. She adopted him and also cared for her ailing mother when she moved to Silver Spring, Maryland. Although Carson had learned about the pesticide DDT since around 1945, editors did not find the subject to be popular enough to write about. With popular support after World War II at a high, this new pesticide was often referred to as the, quote, insect bomb and was used to control malaria and typhus among troops as well as civilians. 
Though it was first used during the war and was developed through military funding of science, it quickly became a best-selling insecticide available for home use. Rachel and her mother planned to move to Southport Island, Maine, when she received a letter from a local woman named Dorothy Freeman. In the summer of 1953, Freeman welcomed her to the new neighborhood, setting off a lifetime of friendship and correspondence. For the last 12 years of Carson's life, the two would exchange over 900 letters, seeing each other only in the summers when she returned to Maine. Many of these letters were burned before Rachel's death in 1964, and those that remained were compiled into a book, Always Rachel, which was edited by Freeman's granddaughter. They communicated about most all things in life, but their most common interest was a love of nature. Some of the letters have a tone and cadence that have led some historians to believe their relationship extended beyond friendship and into the realm of romantic, but because of the times, it's likely that the two kept this part of their relationship a secret. Carson's final letter to Freeman before her death ends with, Never forget, dear one, how deeply I have loved you all these years. Whether or not Rachel Carson was queer is a question we may never be able to definitively answer, but the strength of their bond had a deep impact on Carson's life and writing. To be able to have a confidant and friend that she could be wholly honest with was important to her. After World War II, the use of synthetic chemical pesticides increased, and Carson began to write in order to warn the public about the long-term effects of pesticides. It is unclear what exactly prompted Carson to focus in on pesticides, with many biographies citing different sources. So here are just a few. In 1957, she moved to Silver Spring, Maryland, where she received a letter from a friend in Massachusetts about the sudden death of birds after pesticide spraying. She started closely following the federal proposals put forth by the United States Department of Agriculture concerning widespread pesticide spraying for the purposes of eradicating fire ants. The federal government also started a gypsy moth eradication program that involved aerial spraying of DDT and other pesticides on both public and private lands. Long Island residents resisted the program, which went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they lost, but they did win the right to gain injunctions on possible environmental damages. Other spraying programs included organophosphates and chlorinated hydrocarbons. The Audubon Naturalist Society openly opposed these programs and worked with Carson to expose the science that was currently available to support their arguments. This inspired her to write her most famous book, Silent Spring which outlines pesticides' effects on ecosystems as well as human beings. The project took her four years, where she meticulously gathered evidence of environmental impacts of DDT and other pesticides. She collaborated with other scientists and journalists who were also documenting various physiological and environmental effects, including some confidential information which was leaked from government scientists. She quickly realized that there were scientists who were willing to dismiss the possible danger of pesticides, and then there were those who were willing to consider the possibility of ecological harm. Other sources for Carson's book included a group of biodynamic agriculture organic market gardeners and other concerned citizens who were autonomously compiling research. Ehrenfeld Pfeiffer was a German scientist, soil scientist, and leading advocate of biodynamic agriculture, who worked closely with Carson in her research phase for the book. She called the work of these individuals, quote, a goldmine of information, and though she strategically omitted some of the sources in the book's final publication, there is no doubt the impact that they had on making the book a well-researched and evidence-backed success. Carson used the brilliant strategy of this era's hysteria about radiation to draw in her readers. 
drawing parallels between nuclear fallout and a new invisible chemical threat of pesticides throughout Silent Spring. We are rightly appalled by the genetic effects of radiation. How then can we be indifferent to the same effect of chemicals that we disseminate widely in our environment, Carson wrote. She took direct shots at the chemical industry for purposefully covering up their knowledge that these pesticides were damaging in any way, as well as exposing their disinformation campaigns, which, among other influence, convinced public officials to accept them as truth. Carson died of breast cancer just two years later, but nothing could stop what she had already started with her writing, and it lives on today as one of the best science books of the 20th century, as it seamlessly combined scientific knowledge with beautiful prose. Silent Spring is also considered one of the most informative texts to the budding environmental movement, which would take shape in the decades to come. The title comes from the John Keats poem, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, The Sedge is Withered from the Lake, and No Birds Sing, A World Without the Beautiful Songbirds of Springtime. In the late 1950s, herbicide was found on U.S. cranberries, which resulted in the halt of all cranberry sales. Carson was present for the FDA hearings on revising pesticide regulations, but she was disappointed because of the aggressive tactics of representatives from the chemical industry. In 1959, the USDA's Agricultural Research Service created a film called Fire Ant on Trial, where Carson's work was dismissed as propagandistic and praised for the use of pesticides. It became apparent to Carson that her research was in direct contradiction with these industry representatives, and their power to sway government opinion and resulting regulation. She questioned the, quote, financial inducements behind certain pesticide programs. At the same time that Rachel Carson was gaining momentum with Silent Springs' indictment of pesticide on the environment, both the Library of Medicine and National Institutes of Health made contact with her to discuss the latest medical research on the effect of these substances on the human body. Wilhelm Huber of the National Cancer Institute began classifying many pesticides as carcinogens. Carson, her assistant Jeanne Davis, and National Institute of Health librarian Dorothy Algyre found conclusive evidence to support the connection between pesticide use and cancer. Though the research was clear, this didn't make their views any less controversial in the wider medical community and society at large. By the 1960s, Carson had advanced to the writing stage of her book, as she had gathered more than enough evidence to support her conclusions. Sadly, she fell ill with an ulcer and other infections which delayed the completion of the book and discovered cysts on her left breast, which resulted in a mastectomy. By early 1961, it was clear that the cancer had metastasized, but she hid her illness from the public so the pesticide corporations could not use it against her as a sign of implicit bias. The editing was completed in 1962, and plans were made to promote the book. The book was so impactful because of its unapologetic criticism of the false paradigm of scientific progress in the post-war 1950s era. It acknowledges that not only do humans live in the environment, we are stewards of it, and also responsible for manipulating it. She writes in Chapter 2, quote, Only within the moment of time represented by the present century has one species, man, acquired significant power to alter the nature of his world. She went on to say that pesticides should be more accurately named biocides because they affect all life that comes into contact with that chemical substance. Quote, Since the mid-1940s, over 200 basic chemicals have been created for use in killing insects, weeds, rodents, and other organisms described in the modern vernacular as pests, and they are sold under several thousand different brand names. 
These sprays, dusts, and aerosols are now applied almost universally to farms, gardens, forests, and homes, non-selective chemicals that have the power to kill every insect, the good and the bad, to still the song of birds and the leaping of fish in the streams, to coat the leaves with a deadly film, and to linger on in soil. All this, though the intended target may be only a few weeds or insects. Can anyone believe it is possible to lay down such a barrage of poisons on the surface of the earth without making it unfit for all life? They should not be called insecticides, but biocides. The whole process of spraying seems caught up in an endless spiral. Most of the book is dedicated to this endless spiral, the effect of pesticides on everything ecological, from the sea and rivers to the soil, insects, plants, animals, and more. She notes that we would see more insects develop pesticide resistance, while at the same time weakened ecosystems would lose native species through the introduction of invasive ones. Later in the book, a few chapters are dedicated to poisoning, illness, and most notably cancer being caused by pesticide exposure. She predicted that cancer rates would continue to rise as these chemicals continued to saturate our environment and public drinking water supply. She ends the book with a call to work with nature rather than against it. Quote, there is then a whole battery of armaments available to the forester who's willing to look for permanent solutions that preserve and strengthen the natural relations in the forest. Chemical pest control in the forest is at best a stopgap measure, bringing no real solution, at worst killing the fishes in the forest streams, bringing on plagues of insects and destroying the natural controls and those we may be trying to introduce. By such violent measures, says Dr. Rupenstone, the partnership for life in the forest is entirely being unbalanced, and the catastrophes caused by parasites repeat in shorter and shorter periods. We therefore have to put an end to these unnatural manipulations brought into the most important and almost last natural living space which has been left for us. Through all these new imaginative and creative approaches to the problem of sharing our earth with other creatures, there runs a constant theme. The awareness that we are dealing with life, with living populations, and all their pressures and counterpressures, their surges and recessions. Only by taking account of such life forces and by cautiously seeking to guide them into channels favorable to ourselves can we hope to achieve a reasonable accommodation between the insect hordes and ourselves. When the book was preparing to be published in September of 1962, several rounds of promotion were organized. She found significant support from scientists with expertise in the field of agroecology and even distributed copies of Silent Spring at the White House Conference of Conservation in 1962, as well as giving a copy to Supreme Court Associate Justice William O. Douglas. In June of 1962, The New Yorker published excerpts from Silent Spring, which not only brought wider popularity to the book, but also brought it to the attention of the chemical industry and its lobbyists. It was picked as Book of the Month in the same publication, as well as serialized versions published in Audubon magazine and a positive editorial in the New York Times. The backlash to the book began immediately, which was expected but still worrisome. This is why the book was examined in great detail before publishing, and Carson's lawyers were confident it would make it through the barrage of criticisms from industry professionals. The companies she indicted sought to discredit her, of course, calling her a communist and hysterical woman, and they worried about being sued for libel. DuPont Chemical Company, a main manufacturer of DDT and an herbicide called 2,4-D, and Vellis Skull Chemical Corporation, manufacturer of the insecticides Chlorodane and Heptachlor, responded quickly. 
DuPont created a report on the book's upcoming press coverage and estimated the impact it would have on public opinion. Velsicol threatened legal action against the publisher, as well as the New Yorker and Audubon, unless they canceled their plans to highlight the book. They also used more covert tactics, such as anonymously lodging a range of complaints about the book's accuracy and producing their own propagandistic content, like brochures and articles that promoted and defended the use of pesticides. Two biochemists from the Fortune 500 company American Cyanamid were some of the most aggressive critics, especially of Carson's criticisms of DDT. They boastfully proclaimed that we would be sent back, quote, into the dark ages, and that, quote, insects, diseases, and vermin would once again inherit the earth, as well as labeling her, quote, a, fan, a fanatic defender of the cult of the balance of nature. Sounds pretty dramatic, if you ask me. But others took a different approach to attacking her credentials as a marine biologist and not a biochemist, as well as her personal character, calling her a spinster with sinister influences, and even a cat lady. Former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Ezra Taft Benson wrote to Dwight D. Eisenhower that because Carson was unmarried despite being physically attractive, she was, quote, probably a communist. In one threatening letter to Houghton Mifflin, Velsicol's general counsel insinuated she was some kind of agricultural propagandist from the Soviet Union and that her intention was to reduce Western countries' ability to produce their own food. Ironically, Carson's book didn't explicitly call to ban all pesticides. It rather preached that we investigate other methods of pest management and limit spraying as little as possible to avoid the development of pesticide resistance. In 1963, CBS Reports ran a special titled The Silent Spring of Rachel Carson, which garnered over 15 million viewers and made pesticide a public issue. It featured Carson reading excerpts from Silent Spring as well as interviews from other experts, including her critics. Her demeanor remained measured, appearing as anything but the hysterical alarmist that her critics intended. After it aired, the issue became so important and widespread that it prompted a congressional review of pesticide use and a publicly released pesticide report from the President's Science Advisory Committee. The same year, she testified before the U.S. Senate subcommittee, as well as John F. Kennedy's Science Advisory Committee, calling for new policies to protect human health and the environment. She is quoted as saying in these hearings that, Our heedless and destructive acts enter into the vast cycles of the earth and in time return to bring hazard to ourselves. Senator Ernest Grunig, a Democrat from Alaska, told Carson, every once in a while in the history of mankind, a book has appeared which has substantially altered the course of history. Sadly, Carson's health continued to decline as she underwent radiation therapy and was unable to speak at the many engagements she was invited to. It seems so sobering then that less than two years after Silent Spring was published, Rachel Carson died of a heart attack on April 14, 1964. Thankfully, the impact of her work exceeded her individual lifetime, and it continues to be as relevant as ever today. If you think about the book in context of the whole trajectory of the 1960s, it preceded the anti-war social movements that were the pretext, the roots of the environmentalist and deep ecology movements we have today. Environmental engineer and Carson scholar H. Patricia Hines said, quote, Silent Spring altered the balance of power in the world. No one since would be able to sell pollution as the necessary underside of progress so easily and uncritically. Her work also resulted in the formation of the Environmental Defense Fund, an organization that brought lawsuits against the government to establish a citizen's right to a clean environment, and its first main focus was DDT. 
By 1972, the EDF, along with other environmentalist groups, had secured a phase-out of DDT in the USA, except in the case of emergencies. In 1970, the Environmental Protection Agency was formed and took over control of regulating pesticides, which was formerly a task given to the USDA, who also promoted the concerns of the agriculture industry. As you can see, there was a blatant conflict of interest there. The Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act and Clean Water Act were both enforced in 1972, and both can be said to have been in the wake of the momentous book, Silent Spring. Though there is no outright evidence to conclude that Rachel Carson was a women's rights activist, her work nonetheless has had an impact on women scientists and whistleblowers, and has influenced ecofeminist theory. Part of the criticisms Rachel endured were explicitly gendered in nature, including being labeled hysterical, amateur, and emotional. Images of Carson can also be examined through a feminist lens, as they rarely depict her doing field or laboratory work, but rather her at her leisure. Not to mention that her book took on an extremely moneyed and powerful chemical industry, run by men and espousing patriarchal discourse like notions of war, domination, capitalist production, and control over nature. In many ways, we can take a look at the various ways Carson was attacked and draw parallels to today. In this era of climate change, extreme weather events, and other human-derived environmental catastrophes. The lengths that the chemical industry underwent to discredit Carson are still happening to scientists today. And most, if not all, politicians must undermine the will of the people to placate the interests of these moneyed companies. The backlash to her work was so severe that, as much as it moved environmentalism and environmental policy forward, it was also a foreboding symbol of the fracturing that was to come. The slow and steady dismantling of environmental regulation, the imperialism that has resulted in these corporations making their way to vulnerable countries, the dumping of pollution and toxic waste into those countries, should all signify that capitalist notions of progress have a gaping underbelly. I believe Carson's hope was that her work would help unify humanity to undergo serious changes before it was too late for the ecology. Unfortunately, attacks on Carson and her work continue today. To accept her work would be an indictment of the whole system at this point, so there's a vested interest in denigrating it. Some say that she is a scientist who cherry-picked her studies to suit her biased ideology, and others claim she's responsible for malaria, and others saying that banning DDT, quote, killed more people than Hitler. These criticisms are just as inflammatory and false as they sound, but it bears repeating that this is how current discourse continues to treat people who sound the alarm on climate and the destruction of ecological life at large. Not only do we have to worry about pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and other agricultural chemicals, we also find endocrine-disrupting chemicals in everything. From our cookware, to our skin care, to our menstrual products, we have synthetic chemicals which are interfering with our hormonal systems, immune systems, intestinal tracts, brains, and more. In many ways, the legacy of her work still impacts the way ecologists and permaculturalists approach pest management. There are many contemporary examples of ways to manage pests without the use of biocides. Restoring balance to the ecosystem is possible when we take into account that nature wants to stay in a balance. By being aware of this in the way we design our spaces and steward wild spaces, we can continue to encourage nature to do what she wants to do on her own. Working with nature and not against is one of the things that gives me the most hope for our future. We have the tools and many of us know how to use them but it is those that seek to continue the destruction that we must work very hard to stop. Our efforts will be largely futile without the ability to stop them at the same time.
To quote the end of the book, As crude a weapon as the caveman's club, the chemical barrage has been hurled against the fabric of life, a fabric on the one hand delicate and destructible, and on the other miraculously tough and resilient, and capable of striking back in unexpected ways. These extraordinary capacities of life have been ignored by the practitioners of chemical control, who have brought to their task no high-minded orientation, no humility before the vast forces with which they tamper. The control of nature is a phrase conceived in arrogance, born of the Neanderthal age of biology and philosophy, when it was supposed that nature exists for the convenience of man. The concepts and practices of applied entomology, for the most part, date from the Stone Age of science. It is our alarming misfortune that so primitive a science has armed itself with the most modern and terrible weapons, and that in turning them against the insects, it has also turned them against the earth. As we continue to fight for not just our own future, but the future of all living things on this unique planet, we must think in the spirit of women scientists who were unafraid, who blew the whistle and challenged the industry when no one else had the bravery to do so. We thank you, Rachel. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please like, subscribe, and comment to let me know how I'm doing. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We're bringing you info on backyard food production and sustainable living on small plots and in urban areas, as well as information about science history, such as the podcast you just listened to. If you enjoy this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com slash polycultured. This concludes episode 30 of the Someone Summer podcast. Good night.